It's the June 14th, 2019 edition of Weekly Signal's Meltdown, a reconfiguration of the last 168 hours of history broadcasting from Studio A at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And as always, a mentally weak, sleepy guy, Mahler, the fake news dog. Coming up, the jet stream. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yes. Connell Chow. Chow. The biggest disaster in the history of the music business and more. But first, do you think any of your ancestors smoked pot, Mike? God, I hope so. That would explain really? a lot of things, too. Yeah. To, yes, oh, that would really so? fill in some of the blank spots, yeah. Traces of premium leaf cannabis were identified in 2,500-year-old wooden artifacts buried with people who lived along the Silk Road in China 2,500 years ago. While cannabis has been found at other archaeological sites from the same region and time period, including a cannabis burial shroud discovered in 2016. How cool would that be? Wow. (laughs) I want me one of those (laughs) cannabis burial shrouds. (laughs) But this, this new stuff that they found, is the oldest recreational weed on record. The Silk Road cannabis has the highest level of THC found at any ancient site, so the ancestral potheads must have been intentionally cultivating certain strains of cannabis for a potent high, or they just ran into some wild plants and remembered where they found them. Yeah. Excellent psychotropic effects. What they're saying is that they could have been carrying this stuff back and forth on the Silk Road, yeah. and the hybridization of the plant occurred during the trips. Yeah. You know, one guy yeah. would have some, another yeah. would have another, they'd yeah. be dropping seeds, things yeah. would happen like that. Next yeah. thing you know, yeah. they're swapping bud. Yeah. While hybridization is a factor known to increase cannabis strains' THC potency, the mm. question of whether the excellent flower was intentional or just a happy accident is unclear. <laughs> Mahler says happy accident. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> A study of artificial islands, or as we like to call them, Cranooks. Yeah. That's what they say in Scotland. Yeah. Cranook. Cranook. In Scotland's outer Hebrides Islands, revealed that some Cranooks were built more than 3,000 years earlier than previously thought. These little artificial islands, 3,000 years earlier. Yeah. First of all, what are Scottish people doing building artificial islands 3,000 years before we thought they built them. Until now, researchers thought Cranooks were built when people in the Iron Age, that would be 800 to 43 B.C. Yeah. Now we're talking 4,000 B.C. They thought they created stone causeways and houses in the middle of bodies of water. Yeah. God knows why. Yeah. But new research suggests that at least some of Scotland's nearly 600 Cranooks were built in the Neolithic era. In fact, some Cranooks were dated to more than 5,300 years ago. This is an amazing story. Yeah. But first of all, the requirement of to the technology involved. Yeah. Tools. We're talking about 600-pound rocks. Right. That were C- conveyed out. somehow from where they were to get there. Into the ocean. Into the ocean, yeah. yeah. These uh, outer Hebrides islands, they're the archipelago of islands uh, above England. Yeah. yeah. 
Who would want to spend all their time putting stones in the ocean? Vicki Cummings, an expert in Neolithic monuments from the University of Central Lancashire, said. Indeed. Indeed. Some of the stones used to build Cranogues weigh about 550 pounds. It's a crazy thing to spend your time doing, Cummings said. I would think so. But not if you had some of that Silk Road cushion. Maybe. You know what I mean? <laughs> you have some so. of that... Some of that... What, that Premium bud from shroud kind. Sh- shroud. <clears throat> hey man, I got the shroud. Are you okay? No, I can't clear my throat. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> Remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about that so-called artist Jeff Koons's stainless steel rabbit sculpture that sold for ninety-one million dollars? Yes, that was a deal. That yes. was a thing. Yes, because it was uh, Mnuchin's dad. Yes. Who, yes, that's right. Who, Steve Mnuchin. Yeah. Who, and Robert Mnuchin is his dad, who is an art dealer mm-hmm. and sold this thing. $91 million. Yeah. That was a record for a, a so-called living artist for right. $91 right. million. Right. Well, we mentioned that Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, Salvador Mundi, held a record for highest price art ever at $450 million. But the thing is, nobody knew where Salvador Mundi was when we talked about it. Yeah. Well, it turns out, thanks to a Weekly Signal's investigative reporting department. Well, that would be Mahler. Yeah, Mahler. Yeah. <laughs> Take some credit, right, Mahler. Mahler. Good boy. Good boy. It's been discovered that Salvador Mundi is being kept on a super yacht named Serene, owned by Saudi Crown Prince and presumed co-signer of the contract to kill Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah. He's got it now. He's got it. What so, the hell? He's or, running around with a picture of Christ. Yeah. On his yacht. On his yacht. Yeah. Salvador Mundi will remain aboard the ugly fiberglass yacht until the Saudis create a planned cultural hub in the kingdom's Al-Ula region. This yeah. is what the super uber wealthy are spending their money on, is art. It's now yeah. considered a financial investment. It's not really thought of in the terms that you and I would think of it as something to be celebrated as great art. It's and to share with and people. And to share, exactly. And to be exuberant about the accomplishments of That's man. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's on some arrogant a-holes yacht in the middle of God knows where. So there's a world we live well, in. Well, he might let it out to be shown places. <laughs> Experts at the Louvre have attributed the work to da Vinci's workshop rather than just da Vinci, which I think is kind of cool. So this guy spends all this money for a work by Da Vinci, and it turns out he was done. It was, it was done a, by his gophers. It was a class project. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's hey, gonna drop the price. Yeah. Hey, Ben Salman, <laughs> hey, you were had. You were had. Leonardo had a couple too many the night before. He said, "Look, I got to do this. I'm yeah. on a deadline." Hey, kids, come yeah. here. Come here. Let's all gather on the table. You take that part. I'll take this part. Meanwhile, the Louvre has asked to borrow the work for an October exhibition. Well, on one hand, I'm kind of glad that this arrogant a-hole spent all this money for this. I'm actually happy that he's wasting his money on stuff. Okay. Yeah. In a week, when a heat wave killed 17 people in India, where temperatures there hit 122 degrees and roads were hosed down to prevent them from melting, and when the Trump administration blocked the State Department from submitting to the House of Representatives a report that described the consequences of climate change as potentially catastrophic, the lowest Arctic sea ice extent, that's the area of the ocean covered by ice, Mm -hmm. 
in the 40-year satellite record for this time of year was beaten. There's less ice than there was ever before for yeah. this time of year yeah. in the Arctic. We keep setting records, Yeah, which is not a good thing. And this year's record is likely to be increased. Yeah. It just set the record over the next few days. Right. We'll probably keep setting the record as it melts off even more. The declining Arctic summer ice sea extent, which has fallen by about half since 1979, could be generating a cascade of harmful effects. That's what we always talk about here. It's not just, oh, the, the world is getting warmer. It's like everything that cascades after these things take effect. As the Arctic melts, the heat differential between the far north and temperate zone lessen, causing the jet stream to get squee. As the polar jet stream loses energy, it can fail to hug the Arctic Circle. Instead, it starts to dip deeply into the temperate zone, forming great waves which can block and stall weather patterns there, bringing long bouts of rain and floods, like what's going on in the Midwest now. Yeah, yeah think of it as kind of a snaking of the... It used to be a steady stream, but now as it sort of snakes because of the changes in temperature and the ice flow, it now becomes this snaking jet stream, so it creates a very erratic weather pattern. I think the scientific term for it is squiggy. Squiggy, yeah. yes. It's a squiggy stream. Squiggy. And as that happens, more fresh water enters into the ocean, which then warms the, the ocean temperatures, which creates a whole nother wave of issues, including the migration of species to different parts of the ocean uh -huh. to which they are not going to find the food that they need and all kinds of sort or of cascading. they'll find different food and drive down the population of those fish. Yeah, it's a cascading it effect. fishermen. Right. The tornadoes in the Midwest this May also could have had their origins in the warming Arctic. The jet stream's movement can also bring extended heat waves and drought. Jet stream winds in May shot directly across the midsection of the United States, bringing huge amounts of weather energy from the Pacific Ocean into the Midwest. And they're talking about the effect on crops now. Soybean, corn being impacted, the ability to grow these very important crops is diminishing. Bomb cyclones, severe thunderstorms, heavy rain, and catastrophic flooding in the Mississippi River Basin have all possibly been born out of this year's deeply askew jet stream. Yeah. The Arctic sea ice death spiral. Wow. And the extreme weather it can trigger are adversely impacting agriculture, infrastructure, economics, and human lives. That's right. I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch my idea once again that if we can engineer a way to get the water that's on the other side of the Rocky, which is now creating all this havoc because of the weather other patterns. Other side of the what? Other side of the Rockies is basically we're talking about the Mississippi Valley, yeah. ri the river that the the river valley, if you will. All of that water is accumulating. They have a ton of water on that side of the Rockies, yeah. and we don't have enough on this side of the Rockies. All I'm proposing is to put our engineering expertise. And we, and we use a lot of, of uh, diesel trucks. And tractors. Yes, that's what we, I'm saying. Exactly. Whole, Boy, you're... A squadron. Yes, yeah, squadron. Of, yeah, just a, of, a continuous line of diesel-burning trucks yeah. shipping water from one side of the Rockies to yeah. the other. Okay. That, that sounds like a great... I'm talking about some kind of tunneling, some sort of, a, some sort of an aqueduct, of, if you will, bringing water from that side to this side. That's all I'm saying. 
It's a big project. Sounds like a five-year-old's idea. No, I think, I'm i sure there saying. are points in the Rocky where you could... Well, hey, I'm sure the railroad system in America sounded like a five-year-old's project to, to accomplish. Or, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just saying. Point taken. However, how do yeah. you do it? First of all... I know. I don't know how. You have to build some clean energy yeah. to do it. You just don't move dirt around. No. I got an idea. Oh, it's okay. Consume less. Well, there is that part of it, of course. Just say we need we need to think big in, if we're going to mitigate the effects of climate change. If this news frightens you, may I recommend a donation to KUCI to bring you peace? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech. At KUCI 88.9 FM. KUCI.org. We already know that the Defense Department is worried about climate change. This has been a thing for the Defense Department. They have put it in their threat analysis since the early 2000s. I think around 2002, 2003, the Department of Defense started identifying climate change as an existential threat to America's power and the ability of the United States to marshal its military in a way that are effective. They put together reports that project the consequences of global warming, which would be the rising seas, powerful storms, famine, and diminished access to fresh water. And those will make the world politically unstable and cause mass migration and ensuing wars. That's what they say. That's those liberals, those tree huggers over at the Department of Defense. Yeah. But although the Defense Department has significantly reduced its fossil fuel consumption since the early 2000s, it's the U.S. government's largest fossil fuel consumer, accounting for 77 to 80 percent of all federal government energy consumption since 2001. Yeah. In 2017, the Pentagon's greenhouse gas emissions totaled over 51 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. If it were a country... The U.S. Department of Defense would have been the world's 55th largest greenhouse gas emitter. They would be uh, worse than Sweden or Denmark in that regard. The largest sources of military greenhouse gas emissions are buildings and fuel. The Defense Department maintains over 560,000 buildings, which account for more than 40% of its greenhouse gas emissions. The rest comes from operations. In fiscal year 2016, for example, military weapons and equipment use so much fuel that the measurements for defense planners is gallons per mile. Not miles per gallon, gallons per mile. Like if you had a car and somebody (laughs) said, how many miles per gallon does it get? You said, no, no, doesn't work that way. For example, the B-2 stealth bomber, which holds more than 25,000 gallons of fuel. It holds that much. Yeah. 25,000 gallons. Fill her up, burns over four gallons per mile, and emits more than 250 metric tons of greenhouse gas over a 6,000 nautical mile range. The KC 135R aerial refueling tanker consumes almost five gallons per mile. So you yeah. think, like, uh, yeah. how does that work? Well, in January 2017, two B 2 bombers traveled more than 12,000 miles from Whiteman Air Force Base to bomb ISIS targets in Libya. They killed 20 suspected ISIS militants. So, what did that cost? B 2s emitted about 1,000 metric tons of greenhouse gas. And now we got a tanker flaming up over there in the Middle East. Couple. 
couple of them. Yeah. Sounds like the Gulf of Tonkin to me. It sure does. Yeah. And we've talked about this uh, without we going down this rabbit hole. Say, but That's how we got in Vietnam, yeah. and it was a staged attack. We said we were attacked. We were not attacked. Well, yeah. That's documented, and it sounds like exactly the same thing is going on here. Right. First of all, I just want to comment on the U.S. Defense Department. I'm happy that they're identifying climate change as a threat to the world and their own context as a threat to America, but at the same time, it is the largest organization, single entity, aside from a country, that creates climate-damaging impacts. The other part of this, this part about these two tankers that have been attacked in the Straits of Hormuz, keep in mind, uh, two years ago, we were talking about Eric Prince and his contacts with the Trump administration and touting his ability to create an incident yeah. that would lead to a war with Iran. He sold himself as the agent who could do that for the U.S. military. Uh, Eric Prince yeah. is the one from Blackwater. Let's talk about what he does. He, what he does. Well, he was known for his Blackwater, which is the private security... Mercenaries. Mercenaries is what he has. And he claims to have a mercenary army of over 20,000. He's now based out of the United Arab Emirates. And somehow, some way, these two tankers, which under some really weird circumstances, are now under attack, which... It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. And the fact that Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was out there within a couple of hours with a very staged press conference to talk about this yeah. is another red flag. And nothing better would help Trump than to get into a war because he's under a severe amount of pressure for a lot of reasons. But we've seen this story before. We need to think what we're doing militarily and reduce the amount of energy that the armed forces uses to protect Middle East oil. A great way to do that is don't use Middle East oil. Yeah. And go in the direction that 40 years ago Jimmy Carter was trying to take us. Right. With solar energy, alternative energy sources. There is a school of thought about the U.S. military that one of the reasons why we are so heavily invested in protecting the Middle East is because the U.S. military uses more fossil fuel than any entity in the world. Yeah. There is a sort of self-serving idea, self-perpetuating idea here that the U.S. military is so absolutely concerned and consumed, if you will, with protecting the oil fields of yeah. the Middle East. I like that Eric Prince idea. Did you come up with that? No, this was the, the, the meeting in the Seychelles, which we... we no, heard. I know about that. Yeah. I mean... Did you project him onto this? I am. Event? I am projecting yeah, him into this. That makes the, a lot of sense yeah, to me. Yeah. Prince did it. Prove me wrong. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9. On our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com. On Twitter at KUCI FM. On Instagram at KUCI FM. Stream us live on TuneIn or on iTunes. Go to Internet College University, KUCI 88.9 FM. You know, Mike, mm -hmm. Americans are always blaming Trump for everything. Okay. Because he's such an evil, ignorant doofus. <laughs> but it's the whole Republican Party that's at fault. Yeah. And it's been going on for decades. Yes. Reagan, Roger Ailes, yeah. Rupert Murdoch, they're just all evil, ignorant doofuses. And, of course, there's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and his lovely wife and evil, ignorant doofus Elaine Chow, yeah. who is the 
Transportation Secretary. How'd that happen? I have no idea. Chow has blatantly leveraged her position in Trump's cabinet to benefit her family shipping business, the Foremost Group. That's a New York-based company with deep ties to China. Deep ties to China. In 2017, Chow had planned to visit Beijing ostensibly to uh, do government business there. But she had had arranged members of her family to attend government meetings. This so alarmed the U.S. Embassy that staffers there got in touch with the State Department to find out how to handle it. The visit was canceled, but Chow has held at least a dozen interviews with Chinese media and her father, James, the founder of the Foremost Group, by her side. Daddy's by her side. They own one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. It's breathtaking. It is. It's truly breathtaking. So Elaine Chow's father and other members of her family have given millions to Mitch McConnell's campaigns over the years. In turn, they've been paid back in influence. Meanwhile, Foremost and the Chow family benefit handsomely from the industrial policies in Beijing that are at the heart of the diplomatic tensions in the United States. Yeah. How does that even work? This sounds like treason to me. It is treasonous. It is treasonous. In what administration would this nominee have gotten through a confirmation hearing where their family's involved in shipping and they're now secretary of transportation? How would this have happened? This is the other thing. Mitch McConnell is deeply compromised, corrupt, and treasonous. This is the same guy who Derek Orlopaska... Derek Olapaska. Yeah, yeah, the the Russian oligarch yeah. who set up the right, right. Uh, set up the aluminum plant yeah. in Kentucky after McConnell, McConnell ba- engineered, yeah, McConnell State engineered the lifting of the sanctions, the economic sanction against him. Yeah. And here's his wife. Oh, by the way. Talk about globalists. Yeah. And talk, talk <laughs> about having your country turned over to them. Right. That's what's going on here. That's what is happening. This is also, apparently, Chow had somebody in the department, in the transportation department, whose only real job was to make sure that they steered transportation projects to Kentucky yeah. to help Mitch McConnell. Yeah. He had priority. Anyway, For, they're all yeah. e- ignorant doofuses. Okay. And Joe Biden thinks things are going to return to normal yes. when uh, Trump leaves office. This is it, kids. Joe. This is Joe. This what is... you smoking? Yeah. I got some of that Silk Road weed. Yeah. Cut it out. Look, I don't want him to be the nominee. But if he is the nominee, I will vote for him as many times as I humanly can. Okay? Yeah. But this is it. The quote-unquote normal that you're describing, Nathan, is a frightening possibility at a time when we don't need normal. Yeah. We need extraordinary. And I think I, I've said it before, and I don't, I'm sorry this sounds harsh, but to me, Joe Biden is Hillary Clinton in a Brooks Brothers suit. And I say that for all the electoral deficits that she had, he in some version will have as yep. well. I don't mean that in a sexist way. I just mean he or even will. in a policy way, he, I don't he think. He will suffer many of the same consequences that Hillary suffered. Yeah. As you know, Mike. Yeah. This has not been a good year for the National Rifle Association. (laughs) Good. As we've reported on Weekly Signals, the NRA lost a huge amount of money in 2018. Since then, the NRA went through a public crisis of leadership when uh, NRA President Ollie North wanted to oust NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre. Yeah. And leaked documents showed insane spending by executives, all while the NRA was doing fundraising that plays up financial losses. Yeah. 
Now, a new report shows that this insane spending extended to members of the organization's board who were often paid for services by the NRA. Now, board members don't get paid. You get a stipend. Yeah, 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 it's a conflict of interest to be doing business with with the organization you're representing. You get a stipend just for showing up. A former pro football player, Dave Butts, who serves on the NRA board, was paid... $400,000 by the NRA for public outreach and firearms training. Another board member, a writer in New Mexico, collected more than $28,000 for articles in NRA publications. Another board member sold ammunition from his private company to the NRA. In all, according to their own tax filings, 18 members of the NRA's 76-member board who are not paid as directors collected money from the NRA during the past three years. By the way, did you see in the article who's also on the NRA board? Who? Carl Malone. Oh, Former God. power forward for the oh, Utah man. Jazz. I knew. I knew there was a reason I didn't like him. I know. I never liked him either. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that because of this. This is, this never... is L.A. Laker, former L.A. Laker, but ma- mainly known for the Jazz. He I played think. for the Jazz. John and also through the Suns for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it sounds right. He was a very good basketball player, well, but kind of a, a bully, yeah. sort of, that kind of bully ball that yeah. I just do not like, but... His thing was that he drove a truck. He had a big 18-wheeler. Well, if you're going to play bully ball, do it with style like Ben Wallace. Yes. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> ben Wallace is a great bully ball player. Yeah. Carl Malone was just a thug. He was a thug. That whole Utah jazz thing was got under my skin anyway, so. <laughs> Enough of that. I know, I know, I know. An enormous trove of secret documents reveal that Brazil's most powerful prosecutors, who have spent years insisting they are apolitical, plotted to prevent the Workers' Party, the PT, from winning the 2018 presidential election by blocking a pre-election interview with former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva with the explicit purpose of affecting the outcome of the election. Yeah. That's what they did. Kind of sounds like what's going on here in America. Yeah. I was reading about this, yeah. thinking, this sounds like the Trump administration. The archive shows multiple examples of politicized abuse of prosecutorial powers by those who led the country's Operation Car Wash, a corruption probe since 2014. But what they were doing is trying to dig up dirt on Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. Lula. Yeah. I just saw a documentary about this. It's going to be on Netflix coming up this Friday. It's called The Edge of Democracy. Yeah. And it's basically what they got him on was an apartment. Yeah, that he nothing. Somehow, some way, they engineered to make it look like he profited from a construction far, yeah, uh, firm. Yeah, Silva. Yeah, De yeah. Silva bribing him or giving him free work, which he, he wasn't even on the lease. There was nothing <laughs> tying him to this thing. And the other one, the, the woman who followed him, uh, Dilma Rousseff, uh-huh. was basically impeached because she transferred money to cover the Brazilian debt not fast enough. So this is something that's going on in Brazil right now. This party, this PMDB party, is corrupt. They are essentially the Trumps of, of Brazil. And they're, and they're also tearing down the rainforest there. Yeah. Tearing up At the Amazon. At a record pace, yeah. yeah. Ten days before the first round of presidential voting last year, a Supreme Court justice in Brazil granted a petition from the country's largest newspaper to interview Lula, who was in prison on corruption charges brought by the Car Wash Task Force. The team of prosecutors who handled Lula's corruption case, who spent years denying that they were driven by political motives, began discussing in private telegrams a chat group, how to block, subvert, and undermine the Supreme Court decision. 
They were afraid the Supreme Court decision would help the PT, Lula's party, win the election. Lula's criminal conviction last year, once it was quickly affirmed by the appellate court, rendered him ineligible to run, and that cleared the way for Bolsonaro, the far-right candidate, to win against Lula's chosen successor, Haddad, the former Sao Paulo mayor. Look into the history of Brazil. Back in 1963, the United States engineered a military coup. Brazil is... Uh, sort of as a democratic society is really very recent only within the last maybe couple of decades has it been a democracy in a true sense and so the ruling class the rich have been trying to unengineer the democratic process there since and lula was a an anomaly in that Back in the U.S., on a happy note, a U.S. jury could not reach a verdict against a border activist who was arrested last year for providing two migrants with water, food, and lodging. Scott Daniel Warren, a 36-year-old college geography instructor, was charged with conspiracy to transport and harbor migrants in a trial that humanitarian aid groups said would have wide implications for his work. He faced up to 20 years in prison. 20 years in prison, Warren is one of nine members of the humanitarian aid group No More Deaths who have been charged with crimes under Trump's hardline immigration policies. Thousands of migrants have died crossing the border since the mid-1990s when heightened enforcement pushed migrant traffic into Arizona's scorching deserts. Warren has said his case could set a dangerous precedent by expanding the definition of the crimes of transporting and harboring migrants to include people merely trying to help border crossers in desperate need of water and other necessities. Warren and other volunteers with No More Deaths group also were targeted this year in separate federal misdemeanor cases after leaving water, canned food, and other provisions for migrants hiking through the deserts. For more information on No More Deaths, No Mas Muertes, go to nomoredeaths.org. And now to some depressing news about music, music shall we this is sad a new york times report revealed that the fire that swept across the back lot of universal studios hollywood on june 1st 2008 burned an archive of sound recordings of the most historically significant material owned by universal music group the world's largest record company the fire made news but nearly all news outlets characterized the fire as a close call The New York Times reported that a vault full of video and television images had burned up, but it added that in no case was the destroyed material the only copy of the work. A master. The claim attributed to Universal Studios officials. That's That's what they said. But now we find out that the archive that burned in Building 6197 was Universal Music Group's main West Coast storehouse of masters, the original recordings all subsequent copies are made from. It's a -a one-of-a-kind thing. The vault held masters dating back as far as the late 1940s. It held multi-track recordings, the raw recorded materials, each part still isolated, drums, keyboards, and strings on separate channels, and it held session masters recordings that were never commercially released. That's the other thing that's too bad, too. You have all these great artists, all these different takes of their songs that could have been remastered. The company priced the combined total of lost tape and loss of artistry to $150 million, but the cultural loss is much higher. 
Among the incinerated Decca masters were recordings by Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Al Jolson, Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, and Judy Garland. The tape masters for Billie Holiday's Decca catalog were lost in total. The fire claimed most of Chuck Berry's chest masters. That's a label that he was on, the original label. The destroyed chess masters encompassed nearly everything else recorded for the label and its subsidiaries, including most of the chess output of Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon, Bo Diddley, Etta James, John Lee Hooker, Buddy Guy, and Little Walter. Virtually all of Buddy Holly's masters were lost in the fire. Most of John Coltrane's Impulse masters were lost, as were masters for treasured Impulse releases by Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Coleman Hawkins, Dizzy Gillespie, Max Roach, Art Blakey, Sonny Rollins, Charles Mingus, Ornette Coleman, Alice Coltrane, Sun Ra, Albert Eiler, Pharaoh Sanders, and other jazz greats. They're gone. That's just, this is, I'm going to cry. I swear to God. Don't do it. All right. Also destroyed were the masters for dozens of hit singles, including Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock, Bo Diddley's I'm a Man, Etta James at Last, The Kingsman's Louie Louie, and the impressions People Get Ready. The list of destroyed single and album masters takes in titles by dozens of legendary artists, including Benny Goodman, Cab Calloway, the Andrews Sisters, the Ink Spots, the Mills Brothers, Lionel Hampton, Ray Charles, Les Paul, Fats Domino, Big Mama Thornton, Merle Haggard, Quincy Jones, Burt Bacharach, Joan Baez, the Mamas and the Papas, Joni Mitchell, Captain Beefheart, Eric Clapton, Steely Dan, Iggy Pop, Chaka Khan, Barry White, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the Police, R.E.M., Sonic Youth, No Doubt, Nine Inch Nails, Snoop Dogg, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Beck, Sheryl Crow, and Tupac Shakur. All those masters lost. It was the biggest disaster in the history of the music business. And finally, Elvis Costello wrote an open letter after being named the officer of the Order of the British Empire. Okay. You know those things? Yeah. To be honest, I'm pretty tickled to receive this acknowledgement for my services to music, as it confirms any long-held suspicion nobody really listens to the words in songs, or the outcome might have been somewhat different, <laughs> he said. He wrote a 1989 song, Tramp Down the Dirt, it imagines himself dancing on the grave of Margaret Thatcher. And he was not a big fan of much of the politics of England, and yet he's getting the Officer of the Order of the British Empire Award. Yeah, yeah. when he, came, he, when he came onto the scene, he was yeah. quite the angry man. But he went on a little bit, and he had a dig for uh, that orange devil in the White House. It would be a lie to pretend that I was brought up to have a great sense of loyalty to the crown, let alone notions of empire, Costello continued. I used to think a change might come, but when one considers the kind of mediocre entrepreneur who might be foisted upon us as a president, it's enough to make the most hard-hearted Republican long for an ermine stole, a scepter, and an orb. <laughs> You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review Podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.